Our text this morning actually begins in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, got to get this voice right, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them, something like that. Uh, Randall uh, Hampton has assembled another lovely PowerPoint today, some of which uh, you might even be able to see. I hope you can. We have a little trouble this way, but you all can see it. So these are grumbling Pharisees and scribes, just to give you the start here. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. It was a challenge to which Jesus responded. He responded with three parables about lost valuables. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Each of these parables escalates the stakes. Each lost item is more valuable than the one before. One sheep out of a hundred, pretty valuable. One coin out of ten for a poor widow, quite valuable. Everything she has, it's one-tenth. And one son out of two. Using the classic technique of arguing from the familiar to make an unexpected point, Jesus challenges his listeners. Surely, he says, if you would drop everything to find one lost sheep out of a hundred, or one coin out of ten, surely God will drop everything to find a lost person, right? It makes perfect sense, maybe to a lot of us, it makes perfect sense from a certain kind of religious perspective about God, a perspective in which each human being on the planet is of great value to God, immeasurable value, infinite value, in which the best way to picture how much value a person has in God's sight is to think of the comparison to a very loving, very forgiving dad or mom and how much such a parent values their own child and how much they want more than anything to be in a reconciled, happy relationship with the child. I think many of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. But this was not the understanding of God that dominated among the Pharisees and the teachers and interpreters of the law, the lawyers, the scribes. They would not have grumbled over Jesus and the way he was so attractive to outcasts and sinners. The way he hung out over dinner with the riffraff of that time from their perspective, spiritually and culturally and socially. They would not have grumbled about this if they thought of God the way that Jesus thought of God. But they didn't think of God the way that Jesus thought of God. For his critics, God was fundamentally lawgiver. God remains, thank you Randall for this one, this is brought down the house in, in both services. God the angry, strict 
lawgiver. The God who remains in relationship only with those who scrupulously keep every detail of the Jewish law as interpreted by the strictest group of scribes and Pharisees. This interpretation ruled out 100% of all human beings who were not Jewish from having any kind of a relationship with God. And it ruled out a very high percentage of those who were Jewish, but who were not quite law-abiding enough as these gentlemen believed it should be done. From their perspective, Jews who had lost their way were worse than pagan Gentiles who didn't know any better and couldn't be expected to know any better. Jews should know better. After all, they had Torah and the prophets. They have the synagogue and, of course, the temple. And they have Pharisees and scribes right there to teach them very clearly the intricate demands of God's law. So failure to observe the law under such circumstances of abundant available teaching could only mean direct rebellion against God. These were sinners. And everyone knows what you do with sinners. What you do with people who rebel against God. At least you do this. You exclude them. If you're merciful enough not to kill them, you exclude them as if they were dead. In a spirit that can only be described as righteous religious contempt. By the way, it's very clear that this was the kind of spirit that a man named Saul had before Jesus found him and knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus. It was very common at that time. It's very common in many times. There was another really good reason, though, from a certain perspective, to exclude sinners from community. That reason was the holiness of God. After all, God is holy. We know this. The Jewish people knew this. It's all over the Old Testament. Holiness was viewed as one of God's most central characteristics. God is holy. Holiness means a couple of different things. Among others, it means being set apart, utterly different and other from humanity and creation. It has something to do with awesomeness and transcendence. In relation to human beings, it also had a lot to do with God being a morally perfect being, a being the only being without sin. That's what holiness meant. This is deep in the Jewish tradition and is not to be dismissed. Consider the passage in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah catches a vision that goes like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We have a hymn, of course. I think it's the first hymn in the hymn book. Holy, holy, holy. The pivots on the threshold shook 
at the voices of those who called, the house filled with smoke. Can you imagine? But what is Isaiah's response? Woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's encounter with a holy God, the first thing it does is to convict him at a moral level. His first thought is, how can I abide even one moment in the presence of a holy God? How can I be near a holy God? I am unclean. I am unholy. And my people are unclean and unholy. How am I not simply consumed by the fire of God's holiness? There may be some in this room who were raised on, you might say, that kind of holiness religion. It's a very powerful idea of God, very compelling to a lot of people, very much of an important strand in the Bible. But it does tend to have certain consequences that are not always great. This first one is, could go either way. People who are impressed by the holiness of God often have a rather intense desire to become holy themselves. They want to be good as God is good, not exactly as high, never, but to go in that direction. They want to be clean. They want to be pure. They want to be holy enough to be acceptable to God. And this often involves a serious effort to determine what is right and wrong and to meet the standard. To do what is right in worship. To do what is right morally. To be a clean, holy, righteous person. Now, something that often goes with this mentality is a tendency to try to avoid associating with anyone who is not as holy as we are. Because after all, this quest for holiness is all-consuming and if you hang out with the unholy, the unclean, and the ungodly, it might drag you down. It, it, sometimes it was even seen almost as like an like a, a infection or like unholiness germs. And so you don't want to be around the unholy so that none of their badness gets on you. Anybody known any religious folks like that? Jesus, our Lord, was a terrible threat to this kind of understanding of religion. He was a terrible threat to law-based, holiness-based religion, at least as the Pharisees and scribes understood it. I mean, after all, in terms of law, he was constantly criticized for playing fast and loose with the Torah. For example, the cleanliness regulations. Remember, he didn't seem to wash his hands properly. The, um, the Sabbath regulations. Remember how many times he was criticized for things he did on the Sabbath. He was seen as lawless. And he didn't seem to care about the accusation. He also didn't seem to feel any need to disassociate from people who were seen as ungodly or unholy. He did crazy stuff like hang out with Gentiles and, and go to Roman centurions' houses and have dinner with tax collectors and 
have a friendship with um, a prostitute and to, to be around people who were sick and bleeding. In other words, he was violating ritual and holiness and whatever law taboos every day. And yet he exhibited such extraordinary spiritual power to heal and to exercise and to preach that the people seemed to think he was a prophet. But prophets don't consort with unholy people, do they? What a terrible threat he was to religion. And so Jesus knows that people are thinking this and grumbling this way. And so in his completely fearless way, he doubles down. He reaffirms so that it is unmistakably clear that he knows that he is being criticized by the scribes and Pharisees for this and that they are wrong and he is right. He says to them, essentially, dudes, I think Jesus said dudes a lot in Hebrew or Aramaic, I'm not sure. He says, dudes, my difference with you is not just about the law or about holiness or about association. My difference with you is about God. My difference with you is about how we respectively understand God. Jesus is saying, dudes, you may have all the robes and the titles and the degrees and the authority, but you have misunderstood the character of God. And because you have misunderstood the character of God, you do not know what God really is like or what God really requires of people. And so therefore, I will tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about what God is like. God is like a dad who had two sons whom he loved with all his heart. Before he was dead or even sick, the younger of these two sons says, Dad, I kind of wish you were dead and I could have my half of the inheritance now. Is that cool? And the dad graciously gives, liquidates the estate and whatever he has to do to give up half of his inheritance to the youngest son. This is not an especially appealing act on the part of the youngest son. But then it gets worse because he promptly leaves home, takes his knapsack over his shoulder, and goes to a far country, we presume among the Gentiles, that's part of what the scandal of the story is, right? He goes out among the Gentiles and he gets just a little bit crazy. Dissolute living is the polite New Revised Standard Version. Dissolute living. Catherine does it every week. We try not to talk with her about it. It's an, it's an issue. So. so, dissolute living. And he squanders the entire half, his half of the inheritance. It's all gone. He is ultimately reduced from being... Uh, somebody who has inherited a fairly nice estate, to being a hired servant working for Gentiles among their swine. That's about as low as it gets if you're Jewish, if you know about pigs and stuff. And it's even worse than that. He would think to eat the little pods that they get to eat would be a feast because he's so hungry and nobody's offering him anything. He has hit bottom. It's interesting, this hitting bottom experience. Um, In our church, over the years that I've been here, 
I've gotten to know a lot of people who have told me stories about when they hit bottom in their lives. Through, through drugs or alcohol abuse or um, losses in their family life or their marriage falling apart or they losing their job or just religiously or, or morally or spiritually, whatever. That in this case, this young man has truly hit bottom. So he kind of looks around himself one day looks at these pigs who are feasting on pods, looks at himself and says, you know, I think I better go home. I better go home and beg for some mercy. So that's what he prepares to do. He has a speech ready. He rehearses his speech. The fact that he is rehearsing his speech is interesting. It's not clear whether he really means it. But anyway, he's got his speech ready. Dad... I've sinned against heaven and against you. I know I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Would you let me be one of your servants? And he practices that and he's got it all ready and then he begins the long, 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 long journey back home. There are people uh, in this room and in, within the sound of my voice uh, who have made such journeys. But the son never did understand what kind of dad he had. He had a dad who every day would go out on the brow of the hill of their property and scan the horizon looking for him. That's what kind of dad he had. He had a dad who, when that great day finally came that his dirty, hungry, pig-smelling son came down the road, he was filled with compassion and joy. He had a dad who wouldn't even let him finish his prepared speech. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not. Stop. Stop. Get the fatted calf. We're having a party today. Because my honored son has come home and he immediately takes him back so who is God what is God like Jesus says God is like that dad a prodigal in love a prodigal in mercy in forgiveness in grace a ridiculously extravagantly loving God who welcomes back straying sinners like us an extravagantly loving God who is so busy celebrating that we've come back that he doesn't have interest in reminding us of all the ways we did wrong he doesn't get out the book to say, well, here's the 73 violations of the law you did over there in Assyria. Now let's turn to Persia, the Persian phase. Instead, he says, get the fatted calf. We're having a party. That, Jesus says, is what God is like. Do you believe it? But... Jesus says to his critics, you just don't get it. So he adds a footnote to his story. I'm picturing him telling this story 
and they still have that grumbly-looking face going? Oh, God, I can't believe it. It's a terrible story. This is ridiculous. And so he says, oh, footnote, the elder brother. You see, there was an older brother who's all about keeping score, who was all about comparing his obvious virtue to his brother's obvious sinfulness. An older brother who would apparently rather have a dead brother and a heartbroken father than to have his brother back in the family safe and sound. That son of yours. And so Jesus says, scribes and Pharisees, elder brother types, you have misunderstood God. You have made him in your own image. You have made him just as cramped and narrow and legalistic and graceless as you are. But though that may be your idea of God, that is not what God is really like. A story guaranteed to make those scribes and Pharisees hate him even more. As I was thinking about this text, I was thinking about both the people who would be in this room and in the Fresh Start service, and you know we have thousands who are now listening on the podcast. And so I'm thinking of, of those within the sound of my voice today who know that God is really like the God that Jesus talks about in this story. Because you, like I, have experienced God's amazing grace yourself. Maybe there's one specific time in your life where it was very vivid. But hopefully there have been many times when you have been surprised by God's grace. Can you think about some right now? Surprised by God's grace. When once again you have been reminded that the character of God is like the dad or the mom scanning the horizon and saying, welcome home. Maybe you have wandered very far away and when you turned, you saw that God was there waiting the whole time. And God was there with open arms. And if you remember that, would you give thanks from the bottom of your heart to this God of ours? I was also thinking that there are many in our congregation and who listen to these sermons who have known bitter rejection from Christian scribes and Pharisees. There are a lot of them. It appears to be an occupational hazard of religion, not Judaism, religion. Christian scribes and Pharisees whose God is all about what these Christian folks think is law, is right, is holy, and who, who often act as if the most profound way to express their certainty in their faith is to exclude people who do not measure up. There are many people in our congregation who have been cut off from family members, friends, churches, schools, you name it, and declared guilty and unclean.
I myself have experienced this. Um, all you have to do is go online and look up my name. And you'll see declarations that I am no longer a Christian because of things that I believe about God's grace. Many have experienced far worse than that in this community of faith. But if you are here, or hopefully if you are listening, you know that that is not the character of this Christian community. First Baptist Church Decatur, over its decades, has become a community of forgiveness and welcome. A community of grace in which we remember that we are all prodigals who are loved by a prodigally loving God. We are too busy being grateful to play elder brother scribes and Pharisees to anybody else. And may that never change. So if you are a part of this community and you have been blessed by the prodigious and inclusive love of this community, I hope that you are grateful. I know that you probably are very deeply grateful, as I am. Give thanks. And if you are visiting, and you find it hard to believe that a church would not one day break your heart by telling you you're not good enough, you can believe, I believe, in this church. It's the journey we have been on and the community that we have become. This son was lost and is found. How can we not celebrate? Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecatur.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.